Hey guys, stick around. We have a great interview coming up with Thomas Hargrove of the Murder Accountability Project. And we're going to talk about murders in the U.S. And I think a lot of these statistics are going to shock you. And we're going to discuss serial killers, some ones from the past, but as well as some people that may be out there right now that are still killing. And this is a fascinating interview. You won't want to miss it. Uh, quick note, though, there are some te technical difficulties. My camera shuts off about 40 minutes in. The good news is, is we don't lose audio. So if you're just listening, you won't even notice this. And I don't think it affects the interview very much. Uh, it's a very fascinating topic. Enjoy. Please welcome Thomas Hargrove to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Jack, how are you? I'm great. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, so yeah, let's just dive right in. You are you are a retired Washington, D.C. investigative journalist and former White House correspondent. So before we get to your uh, the MAP, pro, uh, the Murder Accountability Project, tell me a little bit about what that was like just being an investigative journalist in D.C. That must have been interesting. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, it's a wonderful, wonderful job. Everyone who's not a lifetime reporter should be jealous because you get to experience so much of life. I, um, I've the things I've done. I've flown onto a an aircraft carrier and done a catapult takeoff. I've been in the um, uh, the death chamber for an ex a botched execution. I've um, I've uh, talked to just about every kind of elected official. I've um, been. Uh, uh, just in the aftermath of a tornado and helped pull debris off someone who sat up straight and looked at me and said, you know, it really does sound like a freight train. Um, wow. know, it's, it's, it's amazing how much of a life you experience uh, as a, as a journalist. And um, it was a wonderful way to spend a lifetime. Yeah. So then you retire from that. And then was it 2010, you, you kind of started this project. Explain how the Murder Accountability Project, because it, it was found in 2015, but didn't it start with something back in 2010 that you did? Yeah, while I was still a reporter, uh, I uh, did a year-long project looking at unsolved homicides in the United States. It was called Murder Mysteries. Hmm. And it was a wonderful project. It won a bunch of awards. But it um, alerted me to what's broken in how we handle homicide in America. In fact, how we handle crime investigation. Uh, we do it differently than the rest of the world, most of the world, and we don't do it better, to be honest. Um, there are so many things that homicide detectives do not have, starting with a master list of murder. Hmm. If you were in London and asked the Home Office to give you a printout of every unsolved homicide in England, they could do that. We cannot do that here in the United States. It's a very decentralized system, and there is no master list. And so the first thing we did when I retired in 2015, I, I formed a nonprofit organization. And among the things that we try to do is to create, without debate or dispute, the most complete accounting of homicide. If you go to our website at murderdata.org, you can look up, if you know someone who is murdered, you probably will find that record in our data. Mm -hmm. So Obviously, detectives use that website to test theories. Okay. We often appear before homicide detective gatherings to demonstrate how to use the website. Yeah. So before you started that though, there was a couple things 
that that did exist. There was the Uniform Crime Report, which was supposed to be a national report on major crime and whether they're solved or not. And then in 1989, they made it a law. But you said the FBI is not using it. They're not reporting. And that's what it was designed for. Correct. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a real interesting story. Uh, about three years ago, a friend of mine who happened to be uh, an employee of the uh, Interior Department came up to me and asked, "What do, what do we know about uh, Native American homicides?" And I told them, "Well, uh, one thing we know is they're often not reported." And he said, "What?" And the next thing I know, I'm um, face to face with the um, uh, the uh, Deputy Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs. And uh, Tara Sweeney is her name, was her name. She's gone now. Hmm. And um, we talked about that. We gave her a report showing where all, all of the unreported uh, Indian murder murders occurred. And the next day, her secretary called me and said, would you put that report online? And we're nothing if not a tool of the Interior Department. We saw no reason not to do that. So we posted it. And... A few weeks later, journalists out west started uh, contacting us to say that, yeah, they can see very prominent homicides of uh, Indians that were not in the data. And every time that happened, I would ask the journalist, well, who was the agency that investigated? And every time the answer was the FBI. And that's when uh, it all came together. The FBI, up until a year ago, has never reported a homicide to itself. Huh. The FBI runs the Uniform Crime Report, but it had never documented any of the cases that it investigates. And it turns out this is a, in violation of a law that Congress passed. Congress became aware of this in 1988, and they passed the Uniform Federal Crime Reporting Act of 1988. It took effect on January 1st of the next year, requir requiring all federal law enforcement, including the FBI, including the Department of Defense, to report data to the official accounting of crime. And uh, nobody obeyed that law. It was completely ignored. Hmm. And so, so we filed a lawsuit against uh, the basically the federal government. It's still pending. It's still pending. Okay. And then, cause there, and then there's this other thing, the FBI supplemental homicide report that was created later that was supposed to have more information uh, with age, race, sex, circumstances, weapons used. And yep. um, did, did, is, how's that going? Are they using that one? Well, they've never, the FBI has never reported cases it's handled to that, mm. although they did just a few months ago for the first time ever. And uh, because we advised them that they're breaking the law, they started to report. They reported three cases uh, to the SHR and to the uh, UCR. Okay. Uh, three is not the right number. Uh, we went through their press no. releases and, and found uh, at least 16 cases that they put out press releases about uh, Indian homicides that are not in the data. So uh, we can document that they're underreporting, but at least they've started to report something. So yeah. point that. explain to me or explain to my audience uh, what's going on. And I don't even know if I really know exactly what it is, but I know that there's some sort of basically epidemic with native American women. There's a lot of these murders that uh, these women are just going missing and it's not being reported or even was it half of these women that would go missing? The murders are not solved. We don't know. Uh, uh, you know, to quote uh, the great uh, Bob Woodward, uh, we don't know what we don't know. And since these cases are not reported, we don't know. So uh, we're trying, we're trying to retro um, that we're trying to 
get those cases. And the first thing we're going to do is see if there is an unusual pattern of unsolved uh, Native American murders of women. That is the narrative. And it is, um, there are now seven state commissions and one federal commission that have been appointed to look into this. And they've all acknowledged that the data are terrible. That, it's, uh, yeah. Missing. It's really so, scary. Now, who typically, if somebody, because I know they have different laws. So if somebody dies, a, a Native American woman on a reservation dies, who would typically be in charge of trying to solve that murder? Would it be the FBI or would it be the, the Native American police or? The answer is yes. So uh, it varies from reservation to reservation. Uh, in many places, the FBI has been designated as the lead investigative agency. Also, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has a legal investigative arm, and um, they too uh, can be involved as the lead agency. It can be the, the local sheriff's office. It can be the tribal police. Uh, the Navajo Nations has a very famous and uh, pretty good police department. Uh, they've started to report um pretty effectively just recently, but they're starting to report in the last five or six years. You can see those cases in our, uh, at our website um, and uh, decide for yourself. It varies is the short answer. There are over 500 federally recognized tribes and it's a mis mismatch of who is legally responsible for investigating major crimes. Mm. So your project, um, you started with this algorithm that it was, a, was the data originally mined from uh, serial killer, Gary Ridgway, who's uh, that's an, I know, knew that name very well. Cause I'm from Seattle. I grew up in Seattle and he was a green river killer. So you used the data from that one to kind of figure out an algorithm. Is that how you did it? Yeah. So um, as a reporter, my very first job was as a police reporter, a cop shop reporter, we would call it hmm. back in Birmingham, Alabama, back in the, uh, in the 70, late seventies. And at that time I was very aware next door in Atlanta of the child, the, the Atlanta child murders and the Atlanta police department was roundly criticized for not recognizing the pattern sooner. I started going to, um, uh, university discussions about, uh, what happened in Atlanta and learned that this is a well-known phenomenon called linkage blindness, that it's common not to recognize a pattern like this. Hmm. So I kept that in the back of my mind. And then later on, when I was doing a, um, a study of how police enforce prostitution laws, I got, uh, when I purchased, purchased my very first copy of the Uniform Crime Report, I got an extra uh, bonus at no extra charge. Somebody tossed in a copy of the supplementary homicide report. I'd never heard of it or seen it before. And it was row after row of individual murders that had been reported to the FBI. And it did include things like um, the weapon that was used, the age, race, sex, ethnicity of the victim, similar information of the offender if an arrest had been made, uh, who investigated the case, the circumstances of the case, which was the police theory as to why it happened. And I don't know where these thoughts come from, but the first thought I had when I saw the SHR was I wonder if we could teach a computer to spot serial crimes, uh, that problem of linkage blindness. Mm -hmm. And I asked my editors for uh, several years, and finally when my stock was high enough in the newsroom, Peter Copeland, my uh, bureau chief, said, okay, we'll give you a year. And who gets that anymore? 
Yeah. But I was given a year to do that project. And in the summer of uh, 2010, uh, I and an assistant, we went through at least 100 methods that don't work. Our guide was Gary Ridgway, who at that time was the worst known serial killer on record. He was convicted, convicted of murdering 48 uh, girls and women in the greater Seattle area. And um, he was our benchmark, our teacher. Uh, we knew we would have success or some sort of success if we came up with a, a computer program, a, an algorithm, a series of mathematical steps that would tell us that something god-awful happened in Seattle in the 1980s. And um, as I say, we found 100 things that don't work. What finally did work was a kind of cluster analysis where we take the data and we group them. We group them according to the, uh, the gender of the victim, uh, the county where the victim was murdered, the method of killing, uh, the weapon that was used. And um, at the time, we later took it out. At the time, we would group them by age, but we stopped doing that because it turned out not to be necessary. Hmm. Um, but uh, we, would, we would then, once the groups had been assembled, we took over, at the time, we had about half a million murders. We now have records of more than uh, 800,000 murders, but back then it was about half a million. And we turned them into about 10,000 groups. And then we had the computer do one more thing to calculate what was the clearance rate of each group. And then we would have the computer sort and tell us what were the large clusters of apparently similar murders that had an extremely low clearance rate. And when we did that, the Green River killings popped right up to the top. Hmm. Not the very top. There actually were um, uh, larger clusters in uh, Los Angeles and Phoenix. Uh, uh, Gary, uh, Gary Ridgway scored third in that list. So we started investigating why in the case of, uh, Los Angeles, it was interesting. It's like they had a convention. There were five separate serial killers working the South basin in Los Angeles County, killing women with handguns. And, um, they were completely unrelated. Wow. When I called the LAPD and talked to the press office and said, Asked him. I sent him a list of the um, of the individual cases that the algorithm had spotlighted, and uh, an hour or two later, I called him back and said, "Well, uh, could these be serial?" And he said, "What are you kidding?" And he used the line, "It's like we had a convention here. We had five separate killers. Wow. They were they were quite independent. They they didn't know about each other. They weren't acting as a group, but they were uh, killing uh, women uh, through the same." basic technique handguns are very very common in la so are those ones solved yes okay those have been solved what about the phoenix one i'm living in phoenix now and it got me worried <laughs> yeah there were a bunch of murders in the desert and okay. um the first time we talked to the phoenix police department um they looked at it the problem was phoenix has multiple jurisdictions it's a real patchwork mm -hmm. and um what the algorithm identified were uh, murders of bodies recovered mostly in the desert. And um, the Phoenix Police Department, at the first time we tried, uh, said, we, we don't have any indication that these are connected cases. Um, in, in subsequent years, we've had other conversations with uh, Phoenix authorities, and they are still looking um, 
uh, you know, there, it is common to find bodies in the desert. And it, it is a common murder technique to dispose of bodies. Often it's difficult to know the, uh, the cause of death because the body has been exposed to, uh, to weather. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anyway, they are looking at it. Okay. Uh, so there's some, the first, time, the first time they said no, and now they're, they're poking back. Um, they have, uh, more than 2000 unsolved murders, um, in, uh, the area. And, um, that's scary. Probably quite a bit tucked in that pile of data, probably several serial killers in Phoenix. Yeah, they they very well may not be uh, active. Okay, um, we're talking about data that goes back over nearly fifty years. Yeah, so this is because this is an interesting statistic. Is that you said that police used to solve murders about ninety percent of the time, and now it's only sixty five percent. That blew my mind because that seems so backward. Backwards with the DNA advancements. Whenever I, you know, I just think I I guess I'm naive because I thought murders just don't happen very often, or definitely not mul- people killing multiple people. Because once they get the DNA, the people get locked up. But 65 percent clearance w- rate uh, of murder solved is what you're reporting, right? I'm I'm sorry to report, but uh, we had a, a hard year last year. We set a new record last in uh, 2020. Uh, we only cleared 54 percent of our homicides, the worst we've ever done. Oh, my and gosh. Uh, if that pattern continues, um, we may be the only Western democracy where most murders go unsolved. But right now, the level is down to 54 percent. Um, the problem is that police are overwhelmed. Uh, mm-hmm. There aren't enough resources applied to the problem. Uh, the nature of murder has changed. Um, increasingly, it involves uh, racial minorities in inner cities. Increasingly, it is drug related or gang related, and those can be tougher to solve unless a police department has figured out how to retool. There are plenty of police departments that know how to deal with gangs and drugs, and plenty that don't. And uh, looking at the murder clearance rate is a pretty good indicator of that. Yeah. Well, and I think you said homicide detectives cannot clear more than five murders in a year. So if 10 murders come across their desk, they're only going to solve half of them. No, they'd be lucky to solve half of them. Uh, The guidance from the Justice Department and others is that it is not a good idea to ask a homicide detective to handle more than five cases a year. Even five is pushing it. Mm. Because murder is a very labor-intensive investigation. Uh, It's knocking on doors. It's uh, talking to people just forever and talking to them again and again, a, a good investigation will re-interview the witnesses multiple times because often they forget stuff. And when they uh, tell their, uh, their recollection multiple times, mm. things that they forgot to say the first time pop up. I mean, this is just the way life is, but you don't see that on television on television. It's uh, yeah. murderers investigated and, solved in 60 minutes by beautiful people sitting in front of gigantic uh, computer monitors. <laughs> it isn't that way. It's yeah. a lot of work. And increasingly, we don't have the resources to do that kind of work. Is the DNA, how often is DNA an issue in solving a murder? Because I would think, I mean, there's got to be DNA on most murders, right? I mean, it's just all you look, you find one little hair and that's something. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that common, but um, yes, DNA has helped. It's also hurt. Um, what happens is uh, 
state laboratories are, are overwhelmed like everything else involving law enforcement is overwhelmed. And it can take many months or in some cases years to get DNA back from a state lab. And that can cause a mm. DNA pause. An investigation mm. stops until they get lab results back. And that can be critical um, okay. because the, if the early days of an investigation are very important. And it would help a detective to know DNA is not going to help. If he knew that, then he would knock on yet more doors and, and uh, do it the old-fashioned way. Sometimes the expectation for magic doesn't, uh, doesn't pan out. Gotcha. DNA, DNA is not the magic bullet we thought. I mean, look at the, uh, look at the clearance rate over time. Despite the miracle of uh, new forensic techniques, uh, we have ever-declining rates of clearing homicides. Hmm. And that's eloquent proof that DNA is not a magic bullet. Right. So Cleveland, I think, is also one of the ones, uh, the cities where you said had the biggest cluster of murders. And you think there may be a serial killer there, but you can't prove it? Yeah. And uh, to their credit, uh, in fact, they were nice to work with. Uh, the Cleveland Police Department. Oops. Is that them? <laughs> they heard you. That was me. Okay. Um, someone called. Um, anyway, the Cleveland Police Department... Um, did start a um, a uh, special investigation re reviewing the cases that the algorithm spotlighted, um, and during that time, uh, it was it was a horrible thing. There was a uh, a murder of a fourteen year old girl, uh, Aliana DeFries. Um, the, the algorithm showed that there was an unusual cluster along Ninety uh, Third Street in uh, in Cleveland. And Aliana um, was last seen boarding a, um, a school bus, well, actually a, a regular city bus, on her way to school along 93rd Street. A few days later, her, her body was uh, recovered in an empty house uh, about half a block from 93rd Street, um, horribly, horribly uh, mutilated. I mean, something out of the Middle Ages. Uh, Aliana uh, was 14, but she looked much, much younger. She had uh, learning disabilities and other issues. Um, who would do that to uh, to a, a young girl like that? I mean, she did nothing to deserve that. And uh, the the police called me back. And we were still in this uh, discussion about uh, these cases. And they said, would you please check hard? Um, we want to see if there's anything like this. They made an arrest. They solved that one. Hmm. Uh, he left his DNA at the scene, and um, they had him. Uh, and every every uh, every instinct in their cop bodies was, there's no way this guy hasn't killed before. This wasn't his first rodeo. He was 44 years old when he was arrested. And who starts killing at 44? Mm -hmm. you know? killing like that. Uh, but we couldn't, we couldn't find anything that was a direct match. There were plenty of unsolved murders of African-American girls and women, but not with that particular violence. Um, huh. So we're glad they caught him. And, yeah. uh, but we, we don't know. They, they were able, the task force was able to clear another murder because of the review. So we count that one as a victory. We don't have proof that they are serial. Uh, although they and we believe Aliana DeFries was probably a serial victim, but we just can't prove it. So do you think that there's other murders that 
they just don't have the DNA or the evidence, or do you think that they haven't even found all these, maybe the other, other bodies were hidden better or something. They haven't found them yet. Yes. The answer is yes. To both. To both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, um, it is, it is common in urban environments, uh, for, uh, serial killers to be adept at, uh, hiding their, um, their victims. One of the, um, one of the clusters that the algorithm identified was a series of strangulation murders in Gary, Indiana. And, uh, we tried to tell the Gary, this is back when I was still a reporter before the murder accountability project existed. And I tried to have conversations with Gary police department that, um, please look at these 15 unsolved strangulations. Uh, we have a, a mathematical technique that's indicating that these could be connected. And if you call up the narratives, they sure look connected. And uh, Gary refused to uh, acknowledge the possibility. That was in 2010. In 2014, next door to Gary, uh, police recovered in Hammond, Indiana at a Motel 6, the body of 19-year-old Africa Hardy. She was strangled and left in a bathtub. Um, They quickly made an arrest, a guy named Darren Dion Vaughn. And he said, well, I've been at this for a while. I've been killing lots of people in lots of places. Um, I'm willing to show you some of my work here in Gary. So the Hammond police detectives called Gary and said, we're coming in. And um, uh, uh, Mr. Vaughn uh, took police to six other body recovery sites that no- nobody knew a thing about. Six other women that Vaughn had killed in a six-month period and hidden in abandoned properties. It can be very easy to hide your work. And uh, Vaughn was pretty good at it. What typically happens with those abandoned properties? That sounds like a very common dumping site. It is. And uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, civic improvement efforts try to uh, uh, get federal funding to plow them under, you know, to, to turn them into empty lots. I mean, that's a good idea. And that is happening in urban renewal projects in many cities. They're trying to do it in Gary. It's a problem. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the problems facing law enforcement is that this is a dirty little secret, but many cities in America are broke. They cannot afford their pension plans. Their, um, their uh, property tax base is eroding. Uh, Gary, Indiana has a, a pretty bad case of that, but so do other major cities. And um, that failure of available income feeds back into uh, not adequate resources being available to investigate major crimes. We simply can't afford the manpower to, uh, to properly investigate these cases because the cities themselves are under-resourced. Yeah, and I mean, that's what's so frustrating when you see this movement for defund the police, which you know, I'm all for accountability of police. I think that would be a great thing. But it seems like they need more resources and not less. Amen. Yeah, I mean the uh, uh, the killing of uh, George Floyd um, was uh, a stimulant for all kinds of civil disorder. Uh, it was a murder, and uh, it was done in real time, filmed by people who were begging the police officer to stop that uh, Mr. Floyd was dying. He said he he couldn't breathe. Um, that kicked off a round of intense um, 
dispute and demonstrations against local police by local people. Um, and that was one of the big factors for the huge erosion in homicide clearance in 2020. It was in response to the George Floyd murder. Yeah, it's just really sad. So, well, let's get into the big one, the, the Chicago Strangler, which this one, um, some of those murders may have been Vaughn from the Gary, Indiana. He may have yep. some of those. Um, but there was 75 murders and only about a quarter are solved. Um, so these women were strangled, smothered, asphyxiated. South and west sides of Chicago, the women had a history of sex work or drug use. And the overwhelming majority, black women, some white, some Hispanic, about what was it, three quarters black women? Yeah, about that. Okay. Right. And so, and then the other thing we know is that this is interesting, the body dump locations, 94% outdoor, which is, you say that's very unusual. And very the, unusual. Yeah. And the majority of women were found nude and many were raped. And it's just really disgusting when you think about the abandoned buildings as one spot, but also trash cans and alleyways. And I, with this part, I don't understand when they light the body on fire, you, did you say that that was maybe to bring attention or is it to destroy evidence or both? Probably, probably it's speculation, but probably to destroy evidence. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you can burn, uh, the crime scene, uh, you improve the chance that you didn't leave something behind that is detectable. Um, but that having been said, I mean, Chicago is a bit of a mystery, um, it has an unusually high number of female strangulations. That was red flag number one. And then when you put names and narratives to the FBI data and you look at those cases, it just screams serial that um, that these were women who were found out of doors suggesting that uh, their killers were strangers, not an intimate, not a member of the family or a friend who came knocking on your door no, this was someone you ran across out of doors. Um, stranger on stranger murders of uh, mostly of uh, many uh, women with histories of sex work or of drug use or both. Um, those are all red flags for serial murder. Um, serial killers have a hard time uh, getting access to women who will uh, uh, allow themselves to be alone with men they don't know. But, you know, uh, a sex worker, that's what she does. And um, there was a, a Dallas um, homicide investigator who put it to me this way once. Uh, you in a way, you have to pity the poor serial killer. What other woman would get into your panel van alone? So they have they have limited choices of, of victims and they often target sex workers for that reason. And is that how There's they... What's that? The, the signs of serial murder in Chicago were everywhere. I mean, it, it was really very obvious to us that uh, that um, these women, these uh, 51 unsolved strangulations of women were not handled by 51 separate men. That just did not happen. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned that. So the locations, though, that's another thing, because these are like scary places where most people don't want to go. So you think that they are luring them in, in their cars and then driving them to these uh, lo locations where they end up, or are they dumping them in the locations after they've murdered them or. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't have access to the police reports. Hmm. Um, it could be that most of these uh, recovery sites are near or at where the woman was killed. 
Um, it uh, it does vary in a, in some of the uh, uh, murders in Washington Park. Uh, the woman was recovered near her home, and so that does suggest, or at her home on her property. Hmm. So that does suggest that she was killed where she was left. Um, but it I, it may vary. I we there are some things we don't know. Uh, we can be pretty confident that these are. Uh, connected cases. We think there are two or three serial killers involved. Uh, okay, so but the part I don't understand. So there's very little DNA con- collected, and none of the there's 21 DNA samples. Is that correct? And none of them match. How is that correct. possible then? Well, because uh, we think that we're dealing with serial killers that don't leave their DNA at the site. The fact that there is so little, mm. there were 21 uh, DNA samples recovered from 18 victims, 18 out of 51. Okay. That alone is pretty unusual. This is strangulation murder, a very hands-on kind of killing uh, involving sex workers predominantly. Um, there should be lots of DNA, and that there is so little is one of the mysteries of, of this case. In fact, uh, I've had conversations with Brendan Dinahan, the chief of detectives, who's gone back to check on this question. Why was there so little DNA? Um, they're not sure. Um, the, the rate at which, at which DNA is recovered from crime scenes has been growing over time in Chicago. But the opposite is true among these 51. Over time, the rate at which DNA was recovered from the crime scene has declined so much so that the last time police pulled any DNA from a murder scene among these strangulation victims was 2011, Angela Prophet. Um, wow. That's very, very unusual and, and quite quite a mystery. We don't have an answer for it. I mean, it could be that the killers are getting more adept. They're, they're learning how to kill without leaving traces. It's possible that the uh, killer's DNA is part of those uh, uh, 21 cases, but they don't cross match. Hmm. Now, that's not, that's not exactly accurate. Um, so in one case, um, there was a woman who, uh, who was murdered and DNA was recovered. And that DNA sample cross matched to a, um, a sexual assault where the victim survived. In was fact, that Angela Ford? Was that? I'm, I'm not going to say who okay. it was. Yeah. But um, um, police uh, contacted uh, her sister, who had been involved in sex work with her, and asked, um, the surviving victim describes a white male um, with a mustache, apparently pretending to have an Hispanic accent. Does that ring any bells? And the um, sister said, no, I, I didn't meet anyone like that. Hmm. Um, but... Um, there may be other cases of cross match. The problem is they don't know who the killer is. And we've been encouraging uh, the police uh, to consider familial DNA uh, work where you look for families of those uh, 21 samples, trying to identify the uh, offender that way. It has been very successful. It's what caught the, um, the golden gate killer in California. It can work. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. And again, it's not a magic bullet and they keep saying they're going to try to do this. Um, but we're waiting to hear the results. So you think it's two or three separate people that, and they just all happen to have similar ways of killing and disposing of the bodies. Yes. Well, 
So if you're a serial killer in Chicago, uh, that's probably the way you're most likely going to uh, practice your craft. Um, killing out of doors, killing strangers, leaving their bodies uh, in uh, disposal sites that are easily obtainable. So, yeah, it, a serial killer would naturally fall into that pattern, which was one of the reasons why the narratives of these murders was so indicative of these being connected homicides. But but they're all using the same method with the strangulation or asphyxiation. There's no, none of them are stabbed, none of them are shot, uh, none of them are, are hit over the head with a blunt object. So why, that's a more personal way with the strangulation. Is that is that pretty common though as, as well with sex workers and such? Um, it is It is common for a serial killer to stick to a method. That having been said, um, there's not a reason in the world to think of what you just said as being completely true that serial killers do mix up a little bit their methods. They may primarily stab or strangle. Um, it, it may, um, there may be a contingency that caused them to vary. We are only able to identify these 51 because of a particular method. Right, but um, I'm saying like if, there, if there's two or three, it, isn't it interesting that they're all using the same method? Like not one of them is using a different method or, I mean, that, that seems kind of interesting to me. Like, is that the most common method for serial killers? Um, it's a common one, certainly. Mm. Uh, cause you do get the hands-on contact with the victim. Um, but uh, again, um, it's possible that when they solve, when they catch one of these guys, uh, they'll find other homicides that didn't quite have this particular signature. Okay. Okay. There's no reason to think that 51 is the right number or that it had to be strangulation in every case. No reason whatsoever. How smart do you think this guy is? Like, I mean, I mean, he must be good to not be leaving DNA or if it's again, if it's two or three, I mean, maybe they're all really smart or I mean, are they just getting lucky? Uh, Hannibal Lecter is a Hollywood fiction that uh, I believe that. (laughs) Serial killers are probably, at best, uh, average intelligence, and many of them are sub-average intelligence. I mean, if you had any brains at all, you wouldn't get into serial killing as a source of your amusement. I mean, that's stupid. Um, And eventually, we hope they'll be caught. Um, But uh, no, these these are not evil geniuses who are evading capture through their intellect. Um, no, they're, they're evading capture because there are so many murders. There are more than, uh, 5,000 unsolved murders in Chicago since 2000, approaching 6,000 now. And that's just a ton of work facing the police. Um, they're doing the best they can, but like so many other police departments, they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So maybe average intelligence, but do you think that maybe they have techniques of law enforcement? Like, is it possibly an inside job, somebody with a law enforcement background, like the golden state killer, or is it just someone that maybe has watched some forensic files episodes, or they must know a little bit about destroying evidence. Yeah. I'm sure they watch TV and, (laughs) um, uh, learn something from that. Um, and, uh, as they, uh, get practice, they get better. Uh, a serial killer uh, uh, kills over and over again, and uh, each time he knows a little bit more than the time before. So um, with practice comes uh, greater abilities, I guess. Um, it's not uncommon uh, for a, a, a killer to 
evade capture for many, many years. Uh, you were growing up, the uh, Green River Killer had yeah. a stellar task force. This was one of the finest law enforcement investigations ever launched, a series of multi-agency good cops who worked tirelessly for years, and they only caught him when um, DNA came along. And they only had two samples of, of all of those victims. They only had two DNA samples that uh, cross-matched that proved who it was. Really? Oh, that yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Oh, that's also, interesting. Um, also, what's interesting, uh, he was a, um, Ridgeway was a um, a suspect early on. Yeah, that's what I and thought. He, um, he passed a polygraph. Uh, they gave him a lie detector test. He passed. And so he was taken off the list. How did he do that? And this guy was not like, he was definitely average intelligence, right? I mean, he was like a factory worker or something. He wasn't. No, no. Trust me. Ridgeway's no evil genius. Yeah. But he passed his polygraph. It's uh, one of the reasons why courts correctly will not accept polygraph evidence as evidence because it's not reliable. And uh, Ridgeway proved it. Um, so. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he was an early suspect because he was known to be trolling uh, areas where sex workers plied their trade and um, uh, just sort of fit the profile. Uh, but they had to take him off the list when he uh, scored as telling the truth. So 48 for Ridgeway, and you said only two had evidence. And also, there could have been more than 48 that they just never found the bodies, right? Yeah, he says he killed more than 70. And uh, nobody nobody calls him a liar. The judge in the case insisted that I'm not going to just uh, name uh, 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 victim 58 and say that you're guilty of that. I, I need proof that uh, what Ridgeway was confessing to was accurate. So they were able to document 48 victims. They weren't. They didn't name them all, by the way, but they were able to prove uh, recovered remains. Uh, but the judge quite correctly uh, wanted um, evidentiary support uh, for the confessions that Ridgeway eventually made. He probably did kill more than 70 people, um, but he was convicted for 48. And until Samuel Little came along, he was the, um, uh, the lead. He was the worst serial killer in modern times. Yeah, so explain to my audience Samuel Little. I think I'm just learning about this one myself. Yeah, so... Um, Little was every cop's nightmare, a mobile serial killer. Uh, he traveled the country. Uh, in fact, uh, apparently about the only city, major city where he didn't kill a woman was uh, Chicago. Uh, he <laughs> killed just about everywhere else. Mm. Um, he, um, he was eventually caught uh, when uh, three DNA uh, matches occurred in uh, California. And he was convicted on the DNA and then there was a cross match uh, in um, uh, Texas. And so a Texas Ranger went to interview uh, him. And uh, after three days of being sworn at and yelled at, uh, he got little to confess to um, killing 93 women. And uh, they've not been able to identify all of those bodies. They're still working uh, those identifications. I believe they've been able to uh, hard identify about 60 of those victims. 
uh, but uh, Little uh, gets the prize uh, for the uh, most dangerous serial killer in, in modern times. So with Littles, and there's 60 identified, how many of those had DNA? Do you know? I don't. Okay. In fact, I would really like to know that. I'd also like to know, um, you think a guy like that should have lit up CODIS, that's the uh, combined DNA database that the FBI r- runs. Mm-hmm. He should have lit up CODIS for years and years and years. I don't think he did. I don't, I'd like to know more. I, I wish that someone would run an, an analysis of, um, of uh, Little's appearances in the CODIS database. Um, it was kind of late in his career before he caught. He'd been killing for decades. Wow, that's so scary. Now, so back to the Chicago Strangler, there was a gap between 2014 and 2017 where there was no murders that, that they know of. But that doesn't mean that necessarily there wasn't any. They maybe just haven't found those bodies. Or it's possible you thought maybe he was in prison or he had health problems. Yeah, sometimes gaps can be uh, an indicator about uh, the killer, that the killer doesn't kill during a, a certain period for a reason. Uh, he was out of state or um, in prison. That's a common reason. Um, serial killers usually are known to police. That's a phrase that means they've been in trouble before. And um, uh, they usually have a rap sheet, usually a, a prison time record. Oh, my. Sorry, I lost you on the, on yeah, the video. Are you, are you still seeing me? Yeah, I'm still seeing you. Yeah. Um, up oh, there it goes. Uh, uh, yeah, we'll just we'll just keep talking. I think hopefully it'll come back. I think it just uh, got a little uh, hot here, but we'll keep talking. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, the uh, yeah. So the the you think there's three killers. One is likely white, and two or more African American offenders. Is that correct? Yes, that's what we believe. And do you think that these are all separate random killers, or, or is it possibly possible that some of these killers are working together? So it has happened that uh, killers have worked in pairs, but it's extremely, extremely rare. There is no chat site or a bulletin board for serial killers. Um, It's hard for them to find each other. And if they did, they probably wouldn't like each other. So um, it's rare. Um, But it does happen. Uh, So mathematically, going with the math, I'd say that uh, these uh, three killers are acting quite independently because... That's the most likely, uh, likely scenario. And so Vaughn is one of them that some of these were, some of it could have been his work. I also heard the name Arthur Hillard. Is he possibly one of the suspects? Well, he was arrested. Um, and this is one for the books. Uh, he's the only case. We're now down to 50 unsolved strangulations. He was arrested uh, about a year ago uh, when DNA finally came back. Uh, they had some uh, uh, of the, victim's DNA in his apartment and it was the, uh, the victim um, and they were able to charge him with murder. Uh, they immediately uh, announced that we suspect him of uh, two other murders, both of men. Uh, one was uh, a man that was uh, wheelchair bound who's, uh, who was photographed by a security camera being thrown in a uh, garbage can, a a big uh, bin by Mr. Hilliard. Um, Hilliard was uh, convicted of inappropriate disposal of human remains. 
um, but not of his murder. Well, police said they think that um, he's guilty of that murder and of a third murder. And I've talked to uh, uh, Chief of Detectives uh, Brendan Dinahan about Hilliard. Um, this is their thinking that Mr. Hilliard is weird enough, he's violent enough, but they're not sure he's the kind of guy that goes trolling along uh, hooker walks looking for, for prostitutes to murder. Uh, they can't they can't put that mo to him, uh, so uh, they think he's a serial killer. They just don't think he's our serial killer. So, okay, so okay, so is there any other suspects, or can you not say? Um, not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, the well, the police have. Um, they think they've cleared one or two cases. I'm not sure they have. They've cleared but are unable to bring cases to court uh, because the state's attorney's office disagrees with them as to whether the evidence is sufficient. That's a common uh, issue in law enforcement that prosecutors don't think is a winnable case. Um, so uh, I don't know. In, uh, in one case, uh, the police suspect a boyfriend of one of the, um, of one of the Washington Park murders um, but they they were never able to take it uh, to trial. And what's odd was uh, there were two murders that occurred 24 hours apart at opposite ends of Washington Park. Both victims were put in a large trash can. Both victims were set on fire. Um, wow. Was it likely that one of those victims was killed by a boyfriend or was it likely that both victims were the victim of a serial killer? The um, the pattern is um, absurdly similar. So I don't know. I don't know that they their suspect is right. But you know, only only time we hope will tell. Um, but right now um, they're all part of a of a pretty large package of unsolved murders that look quite quite similar. Yeah, and then you're doing a great job getting this data. So what else can we can people do to help? I know you had mentioned uh, that Denmark is a is a country that has a better clearance rate uh, for murder, and then they make changes rather than incarcerating people. Um, you know, because incarceration just makes for a better criminal. Um, it, they try to help people get back on their feet, and, and maybe something like that could help our country. Yeah, a few years ago, I, I gave a presentation for the International Homicide Investigators Association, and they gave me a free lunch. And I was sitting next to the chief homicide investigator for Denmark, who is a sweet, sweet man. And uh, to make conversation, I asked him, how many murders do you have a year in Denmark? And he said, oh, about 50. And I asked him, well, good heavens, that's like a slow weekend in most of our cities. How, <laughs> many, um, how many of those do you clear through arrest? And he said, every year, about 49. And I was just astonished. They're, they're claiming a 98% clearance rate, which turns out to be the truth. And uh, I told him, boy, you shouldn't be attending this conference. You should be leading it. <laughs> yeah. He's a very, very uh, interesting guy. And this is a demonstration of how we got it wrong in America. If a homicide is investigated by local police and the police are unable to make an arrest, that's the end of it. Um, there is no layers of review. Uh, the, the state police don't call to say, how's that case going? Uh, have you made any pro progress? 
Is there anything we can suggest? Uh, can we give you any resources? The federal government doesn't call to ask the same questions. None of that happens. It's all local government and local government only, and that local government may be broke. In Denmark, every murder crosses this guy's desk. And if a case has gone unsolved after a few weeks, he'll call and ask, do I need to come out there? Uh, what's it going to take to clear this? Tell me what you've got. Tell me what you've done so far. Do you need more resources? What's it going to take? And uh, having that kind of conversation and for a local detective to know that he or she will have to defend his work um, before a, a federal review, you know, this guy works for the national government. Uh, probably assists in uh, making sure that you've dotted all the I's and crossed the T's. And um, as I was sitting with this guy talking, I was thinking, I'd hate to be a killer and have this guy on my ass. <laughs> right. Really sharp. Uh, he was probably the best homicide detective in Denmark, and he was in charge of it all. And I, I think it's comforting to know that there's one guy who looks at every murder, especially the unsolved murders. And we don't have that in this country. We don't have any of that. So that's kind of one of the biggest things then that people can do is, uh, I think, shine a light on this. That's why another one of the reasons I'm having you on here is to kind of bring attention to it, because obviously we need more resources. That that seems to be the number one thing. There needs to be more resources to, to, to police and homicide and, and all this stuff, right? And people need to cooperate. We need to heal the relationship between police and the public that they serve. Uh, we need that. Uh, we're hoping that the data we post becomes a political force unto itself. We yes. encourage people to go to murderdata.org, uh, click on clearance rate, call up your hometown, and look at how many murders you have and how often those murders are cleared. And if you don't like what you see, and increasingly the odds are you won't like what you see, we hope you don't sit on that knowledge. We hope that you'll have a conversation with your mayor, your city council member, your neighborhood association president. Just start calling and keep calling yes. and get others to call. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be this way. And when cities do make clearing homicides a priority, they start solving more murders. And when they do that, like magic, murders start to decline. And so you get a clearance uh, bonus that uh, you'll get fewer murders in the future to investigate because you've been clearing murders. Right. No, that's exactly yeah. right. And it's scary to think there's, there's these killers out there walking free. That really is upsetting. So I hope that people will, you know, do what you say and maybe share this uh, episode or, or go on your website and people can donate because you guys are a nonprofit and that will help with your research as well. And uh, some expenses involved in our lawsuit. But yeah, yeah, uh, we're all volunteer. Nobody gets paid. Um, but um, yeah, we, we'd appreciate a, a few uh, donations. Primarily, though, we want you to uh, get involved. Mm -hmm. To look at what the realities are in your town. And if you don't like what you're seeing, to to get involved. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's what democracy is. And uh, the, democracy ultimately is the... Um, the resource that will turn this problem around. We want elected officials to know that if I don't get a handle on my murder problem, I'm going to have to run against someone who's going to campaign that he or she will. 
Right. Oh, that's great. I love that. That's perfect. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Sorry, I lost you with the camera. I can see you and I'm glad you can at least hear me, but I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and I will put the website in my show notes so people can go check that out and donate if they want and uh, take your advice and get involved. Okay. Thanks, Chuck. I appreciate the exposure. All right. Thanks, Thomas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I know I did. And I want to thank Thomas for taking the time to come on my show. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out some of my other interviews and make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen or watch so that you don't miss any future episodes. And please bear with us with the technical difficulties. We're changing up a lot of the equipment right now with the camera and the lighting and all that stuff. But uh, when we do get it right, it's going to be amazing. And if you're just listening on audio, you're probably not even going to notice a difference uh, because our audio has always been pretty strong for quite a while now. And if there's ever audio issues, it's usually on the guest's end. And unfortunately, that's just part of doing interviews on Zoom and these live stream sites. But I will continue to try and improve the show as much as I can. And I appreciate all your support and patience with this. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. And remember to shoot for the moon. 